We're, we've been looking at the um, first chapter of 1 Peter. We're going to continue looking at that today. Uh, we're going to focus, I'm going to read verses uh, uh, 2 through 9, but we're going to focus on verse 4 today. Uh, but it's good for us to get kind of the whole flow of this uh, uh, section uh, uh, of the scriptures. It's printed in the bulletin and also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 uh, through 9. Uh, This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So one of the things that happens to us when we read the Bible is we treat it like it's unlike any other piece of writing or literature, which is good in the sense that the Bible uh, is God's word, right? We believe, we testify, we confess that the Bible... Uh, is God's revelation to us. It is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is infallible, and it tells us what we need to know uh, to believe in God, to know who God is, and what it is that God desires of us. And so, so we often come at it that way uh, with understanding that, but then we qu- very quickly uh, look at it in other ways too. For instance, we read the Bible and we think, Does this verse, do these words have something to say to me about an issue that's going on in my life right now? And if you can't make a connection between whatever your particular uh, crisis, trap, thing of the moment is, then you just don't pay much attention to it. You just go on. Well, that wasn't very helpful. Or or you think uh, you you look at it and you make it into something, some sort of um, way to just um, like a well, like a, a little bit of medicine just to get you through your day, right? And so we kind of treat it like, you know, some positive thoughts to help me uh, wait through the negativity that is my life. Well, uh, the, the problem with that is, and one of the things that happens to us when we do that is we forget that the Bible was written by people for people, okay? Uh, and, and people inspired by God, moved by the Holy Spirit, but people who worked jobs, people who had experiences, people who did things, you know, uh, sometimes we act like the Bible came to us simply as, you know, uh, Paul or Peter or John or David or whoever sat down and a light shone from heaven and God said, all right, write this. Sometimes that happens, but more often than not, Uh, God works organically in and through 
the life, the experience, the perspective of someone to communicate to us. Now, let's imagine God came in here today and tapped you on the shoulder and said, Steve, I want you to write some of the Bible. What would you say? Well, depending on the day, I might say, dear people of God, stop your whining. <laughs> right? Or, or I might write, dear people of God, you're so disappointing. Can't you do better? Come on. Or maybe I might be feeling particularly good one day and say, dear people of God, you're awesome. I think so much of you, you, you are, uh, um, <laughs> you're just wonderful. Keep trying, keep doing, you're just great, right? Um, or you might say, stop being this way, start being this way, right? So, so the, there's a whole, whole list of things about that. And so one of the things you have to think about is when you read the Bible, you, you have to understand that there are certain things that are going on in that, right? And so... So Peter, when he sat down to write to the elect exiles, as he calls them, uh, scattered through uh, Turkey, as he, as he begins to write to them, he, he has to make some decisions. Uh, he has to think about what it is he wants to say, right? Now, I, um, uh, I, I think that's important for us because one of the things that you have to understand about anybody who writes uh, is that they have to go through that kind of um, uh, situation where and thought process about what they're going to say and what they're not going to say. Uh, years ago, when I was a kid, the first grown-up book I ever read was a book uh, by a guy named John McPhee called A Sense of Where You Are. Uh, it was a biography up to that point in time of the uh, great basketball player Bill Bradley. Went to Princeton... Uh, then went on to uh, be dollar bill for the uh, New York Knicks, and then uh, uh, was a senator from New Jersey. And uh, uh, my dad loved college basketball, and, and so whenever we had an opportunity to, to, to read a book about a guy who could shoot the jumper and make A's, you know, he was all about that, right? So we had this book. Well, John McPhee was not much uh, older than Bill Bradley when he wrote this book. McPhee uh, writes uh, uh, <clears throat> for the New Yorker, and he teaches literature. And he is the founder of a school of literature that I'm, I'm going to tell you what it is. And before I tell you what it is, don't jump to conclusions, because I know some of you are going to hear what his school of literature is, and you're going to think, liberal hogwash. <laughs> you ready? Uh, he's the founder of a school of writing called Creative Nonfiction. Right? Now you hear that and you think, that's junk. That's total junk. But you know what? You love it. You love it. Every time you watch a historical movie, that is creative nonfiction. Right? No one can film a movie just like it was. Right? How would you do that? Right? Uh, uh, and so what, he, what, what he's getting at is, is that when we, when we write stories, when we write about what we're experiencing, we're writing about facts, uh, those facts uh, 
uh, come uh, from somebody's experience and come from somebody's viewpoint and things. And so, so there's nothing wrong with that, that when God superintends the, the writing of the Bible, he uses people's experience and he uses their perspective, right? David writes from the perspective of a shepherd, right? Peter writes from the perspective of a fisherman. And so, so we, as, as we do that, that's what makes the, the Word of God such a rich and beautiful thing to us is because God is superintending in a, in a, in a, a, by His Spirit this revelation using people like us to speak to people like us. That is a, that's a profound thing for us to, to think about, right? And so what we have to do every time we come at the Bible is, is look at it and, and do what McPhee says. We have to realize that writing is selection. And what he means by that is you choose certain things to include and you choose certain things to leave out. You choose certain things to leave in and you choose certain things to leave out and you put it in an order. Right? Now, uh, uh, one of the things to to unpack about that and and to think about that is how how does that... uh, uh, how does that work? Well, um, recently uh, I, we've been we've been watching at our house the retooling of the uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Ken Burns's PBS documentary on the Civil War. I, I highly commend that. I mean, it is a remarkable piece of filmmaking, really remarkable. And one of the things I remember when it came out 25 years ago, watching it, I was stunned. And the reason why I was stunned is because it was so engaging and it was just people talking, looking at old black and white still pictures. Now, if I told you I'm going to make a great show looking at still pictures with guys talking, women talking, and some really great fiddle music, you you would be like, Really? Really? And you look at it and you think, wow, I feel like I'm right in the middle of it. But those pictures are black and white. Trust me, it happened in color. But we remember it in black and white, don't we? The Civil War, when you think about it, it happened in black and white, right? Didn't it? Didn't it happen in black and white? I think, they, I think there was some color there. So, so as you think... So as you think about that and as you unpack that, that's what we have to get at here in in the way in which we talk about these things. So Peter, when he addresses this audience, this group of elect exiles under a particular set of temptations and problems and and that uh, 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 pressures, persecutions, he wants to say certain things to them right off the bat. Certain things, he, he, he has certain things he's going to say and certain things he's not going to say at the very outset, right? So one of the things you need to note about this is there are no commandments in the first 12 verses of the letter. No demands or requirements or directions. What Peter is doing here is not telling us what to do, but telling us what to enjoy. He's not even telling you what to believe. He doesn't say, here are the facts, believe them. He's simply saying, here's reality. Right? 
Uh, he's not exhorting, he's exalting. And notice where he ends with this is that what he wants us, as he says these things to us, he ends at a place where he says that we live in an in inexpressible joy, full of glory. Full of glory, right? Next slide. So he's telling us what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done, is doing, and will do for us the elect exiles for his glory and for our joy. Let me just, uh, Becky, take, take the thing, thing down for a minute. Let me just say this. So, um, what, what kind of premium do you put on joy? When you think about your life, when you think about the gospel, What premium do you put on the fact that the intention of God is to get glory for himself in this great sweep of salvation and to give you joy? Paul writes that great letter to the Galatians, and the question he poses is, what has happened to all your joy? Well, God, what's happened to my joy is my life is hard. What's happened to my joy is uh, this job is not fulfilling. What's happened to my joy is I'm living with a list of unfulfilled desires. What has happened to my joy is I'm sick. What's happened to my joy is I'm irritated. I'm annoyed. I'm anxious. Really anxious. Seems like we're just hanging by a thread. Well, the people who received this letter from Peter had the same experience. And so what he wants us to grapple with right off the bat, the first thing he wants us to do is to come to a sense of the reality, the real reality of the way things are. And so he wants us to hear and see these six things. Go ahead, Becky, put them up there. First of all, he wants us to know that God is great in mercy. Secondly, he wants us to know that God causes us to be born again to new life. Thirdly, he wants us to know that God gives us a living hope that is Jesus Christ. Fourthly, he wants us to know that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Fifthly, he wants us to know that God promises an indestructible inheritance. And sixthly, he wants us to know that God is keeping that inheritance so that it will never perish or soil or fade. Okay? All of this for his glory 
and for your joy. So what I want us to do is look a little bit at this issue of this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. Now, I'm a baby boomer. I'm 55. Uh, Shortly, uh, I'll be 56, Lord willing. Uh, Baby boomers are about to experience the greatest transfer of wealth by inheritance in the history of the world. Which makes me feel like I'm not a baby boomer. But... uh, Uh, It's stunning when you hear that. Now maybe, maybe you look around and you think that guy right there is set to inherit piles of cash. Well, we, or maybe you're the kind of person who says to those to whom you may inherit something, just don't leave me your debts. (laughs) Or maybe someone who is going to leave an inheritance for you has said, Oh, by the way, I made a decision to make this phenomenally large purchase. Just so you know, it's coming out of your inheritance. But I thought I'd buy it anyway. Is that okay with you? Not that I've ever had a conversation like that before. So, um, or, or you, you may be thinking, and this is, this is, this is one of my favorite ones because I, I whip this one out on my kids all the time. It's like, Dad, you're going to leave us an inheritance, right? And I'm like, no, I'm going to give it all away. And that's to train them to like philanthropy, you know, so that, uh, so that uh, they'll think that's good. Um, but the fact is, when we hear this and we think about this, one of the things that happens to us is, Inheritance seems like it's so far away. And, and you read in the New Testament about inheritance, but you think, really, inheritance? That's way off in the future, and it does not impact in any way how I live my life now. Uh, I remember meeting with a financial planner one time, and one of the questions he asked me was, are you going to inherit anything? And I said, yes, a 1977 pickup truck. <laughs> so... He's like, I can't help you. So, um, <laughs> but one of the things that you need to see about this is this isn't just a, a creative way that Peter and other writers of the Bible use to, to describe heaven or to describe what God has done for us. I would submit to you that there is a way to look at the Bible where what the Bible is really the story of, a group of people, a family, and their inheritance. When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, Abraham, look around. See all this land? I'm going to give it to you. For as far as you can see, it's going to be yours and your descendants. And by the way, Abraham, descendants like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. Abraham dies. He has two kids. And there's been this big buildup for the child of the promise, Isaac. And then he bursts on the scene in Genesis in studied mediocrity. Because you think, you think you've been waiting so much for this child of of the covenant, and he comes on the scene, and there's only three chapters about him, and he's not that great. He's really not. He's not. 
And he has two boys. And he plays favorites. And it causes a rift in the family. Jacob has to go and flee because his brother Esau is going to kill him. And, and it's all over an inheritance. And so as, as Jacob comes back and he, he uh, has, has uh, not learned any lessons about playing favorites in the family, and he does that and it rips his family apart. And as it rips his family apart, part of it is in Egypt and part, he is there in, in, in the land of Canaan and it is one struggle after another, but lo and behold, God is good. And he finds out that Joseph is there in Egypt and, 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 and preserving life. And so Jacob and his family moved to Egypt, and they're there for 400 years. When they left Canaan, they owned some land. You know what land they owned? They owned a cave. You know what the cave was? It's a place where they buried their dead. So after all those years, waiting, longing, they owned a cemetery plot. 400 years, they hear the promise. They hear the promise that there is a land for them, that there is a home for them, that there is a place for them, that there is an identity for them as they struggle in bondage. And, and God, when he reveals to Moses that he's about to deliver them, he reminds Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will be faithful to my promise, and I'm going to give you the land. And so he leads them out. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then finally they take the land. The land is theirs. But what we read uh, uh, about this land that was promised to Abraham and this home flowing with milk and honey that sustained the patriarchs and the people as they wandered in the wilderness. But what happened? They forgot that it was their inheritance. They forgot that it was the gift of God. They forgot who God was. They forgot who they were. And as a result of that, the earth, the land, shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. God says to, through Jeremiah, and I brought you into this plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and, good, and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage, my inheritance, an abomination. And so this is exactly what Peter has in mind when he writes to these exiles. Exiles, remember, people with no home. And he says to them, you have an inheritance. I don't know if you've been watching what's going on in the news, but there are Millions, literally 10 million people uh, in the world today who are looking for a home. And uh, I see pictures of them getting off of trains in Europe and people have set out clothes and shoes and water bottles and things like that. And I think, you know, the, 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 when, you, when you look at that and you see that and you think, what a terrible tragedy that is. Or maybe you think what a terrible threat that is. What, whichever way, or maybe you think it's both. I, I don't know. But the, the fact of the matter is, there's a sense in which those people who <clears throat> are now pilgrims, who are now scattered, right? That's exactly the kind of people that Peter has in mind here. And what he wants them to see is that you have an inheritance, just as the Old Testament of people of God had an inheritance that was a home flowing with milk and honey. 
you do too. And that's what Peter has in mind where he says at the end of this chapter, chapter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so what he wants us to see is that because this inheritance is kept and completed in heaven, nothing on earth can affect it. Nothing on earth can affect it. Nothing on earth can affect it. It is kept. It is prepared. It is complete. And it is ours by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, you, the the the... the, the as I say that to you, I know exactly what's happening in your mind. You're thinking, big deal, that's out there, big deal, I'm in here, what difference does it make? Let's get to brunch. That's real. And it's good, right? Yeah, let's get some waffles in here, you know, and let's quit talking about this pie-in-the-sky business. So why in the world would God... Have Peter write to us these great truths about the intention of God, the work of God, the inheritance of God, and say to us, this is for your joy when there's so little of it in my life. Why? Why? Isn't that a conundrum? Well, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind here is because, honestly, all those things I said that I lingered over purposefully to make you a little uncomfortable at the beginning of the sermon, compare those six things about the activity of God to what you dream about. Sailboat. Great job, kids, spouse, career, burgeoning 401k, a golf course home. Did you see that Nick Saban at his Mercedes-Benz dealership in Tuscaloosa, Nick Saban, for those of you who don't know, is the head football coach for the University of Alabama, is selling at his Mercedes dealership how he has time. A $200,000 Mercedes van only used for tailgating. It's good to be Nick. Wow, unbelievable, unbelievable. And it's not even red, it's black. And so one of, the things, one of the things that is amazing to me is I think there's some, some fool, just like Steve Shelby, who, unlike Steve Shelby, has the money to buy that. Who's going to buy that? Who's going to buy it? And they're going to think, I have arrived. Because I got the Nick Saban tailgating party van, Mercedes-Benz, by the way. So... 
Isn't it funny how when Peter's talking about this, he, there's an allusion in here to what he knows is true of us. Because in verse 7, he says, Though your faith has been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. I wonder why he said gold. I wonder why he said gold. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so here's the thing. <clears throat> um, I, would, I would submit to you that most of us spend an awful lot of our time uh, on our dreams and most of our energy on our dreams. And I want you to know that I'm a big guy about dreams. I think dreams are fine. But I also know that <clears throat> many of the things, if not most of the things that I dream for, are perishable, defiled, fading, can be soiled. Um, I was talking with a dad uh, earlier this morning whose child has just started the great sport every fall, the most wonderful sport of cross country. People hear about cross country and they think, it's an individual sport. It is the quintessential team sport. It is, uh, to me, in, in many ways, one of the most exciting things to watch. Uh, it's the quintessential sport because uh, you're only as good as your seventh runner. Uh, we lived and died cross-country at our house all through high school. And I went up to uh, my son's room. He's in the, uh, he's, his room's in the attic of our house, and that's not a statement about, you know, anything. That's just this is where he lives. And um, I got him up one morning for school, and I looked at the foot of his bed, and there was a picture taped at the foot of his bed of the guy who'd beaten him for the state championship the year before. And I'm like, so are you praying for him? <laughs> is this, is this is a reminder to pray for your dear friend. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm praying, all right. Well, he beat that boy. He had me stand at a particular place in the course and yell at him about how far that guy was behind him and whether he was gaining on him or not, about 600 yards from the finish line. He was ecstatic. What I have worked for for four years, this is the best thing ever. They were silly, they were giddy, they were awesome. And by 8 o'clock that night, he was sitting on the sofa in my den, and he looked at me and he said, is this all that is? Is this all that is? I thought there'd be more. It was fading. It was defiled. It was soiled. It was perishing. So, what are your dreams? What are the things that you set your heart upon that you have determined, once acquired, will give joy forever? Well, Peter says to us, this is it. 
the work of Jesus Christ for you and the inheritance that he has for you that is unfading, imperishable, and that will last forever and ever. So let me ask you, when was the last time you thought about what you really, really enjoy? What is the source of your joy? What is it you're grasping after? And what is it, friends, that you're certain of will give you joy? Inexpressible, full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we we need a sense of this today. I I thank you for um, your uh, grace and mercy. I thank you that uh, you love us so much. And I thank you that you are so patient with us um, because though you have set a rich banquet of joy in front of us, we often prefer other things. And so I pray today that you would help us, that you would give us grace, that you would give us mercy, and that, uh, Lord, you would teach us, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, to take joy in the eternal truth of the gospel, that God is rich and great in mercy, and that through the work of Jesus Christ, we have an, uh, an, an inheritance kept solid, certain, forever, lasting, permanent. Lord, I, I pray today for uh, folks who, uh, uh, whose joy has been robbed by uh, difficulty or by sickness, whose joy has been robbed by uh, stress and anxiety, whose joy has been robbed by, uh, well, success. And so I pray in all these cases you would be good to remind us of uh, the work uh, that you did was for our joy and that we would turn our eyes and by your spirit take you at your word that these things are true of us and that they are true of you. They are true of our past, present, and our destiny. Help us today. Um, And I I pray today for the cynical and the hard and the skeptical. I pray today for those who still uh, remain unconvinced of your goodness and your deep mercy. Lord, I pray by your spirit you would uh, make the gospel attractive, make this blessing, this inheritance uh, seem and be and be viewed uh, to those who doubt it as the most worthwhile, the most wonderful thing in the universe, because it is. So help us, we pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.